cruciferous vegetables, one of the most powerful immune-boosting, health-promoting foods that exists, period, end of story. So arugula, bok choy, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, collard greens, kale, kohlrabi, mustard greens, radishes. Well, hello there, and welcome to another special edition of the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen or a view or a download. Wherever it is in the world that you are, we appreciate the fact that you are here. As the coronavirus pandemic continues to unfold, we are continuing to do our best to keep you informed. And today we will be checking back in with Dr. Jia Zhu in Beijing to see how things are progressing in China. If you recall the last time we spoke, he said that cities there were starting to come back to life and people were heading back to work following a prolonged period of social distancing and self-quarantine. In this go-around, we're going to learn about some of the new measures that are being put in place as life attempts to return to some semblance of normalcy, including getting a big update on what is happening with the residents of Wuhan, where this coronavirus is believed to have began. Then we're going to switch gears to address one of the most challenging pre-existing conditions for people in terms of the coronavirus. You know, we hear so much about comorbidities and the increased risk that they can pose for people who become infected. So we're going to spend some time speaking with Dr. Cyrus Kambata about the challenges specifically facing people with diabetes. You know, aside from heart disease, that is the single most significant factor for COVID-19. And why is that? And more importantly, what can a person with diabetes do to help protect themselves? A lot of that begins with what's on their plate. So what food should they be turning to in order to boost their immune system? We will be taking a deep dive on that specifically. But first, we're going to start with another trip to China and a conversation with Dr. Jia Zhu. Continuing here, our special coverage of the COVID-19 global pandemic here on the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Joined now all the way from Beijing, Dr. Jia Zhu. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Hi, Chuck. Uh, Really appreciate you taking the time again. I know I was uh, speaking to you just before we started rolling here that um, your last interview was so well received. There were so many people who were grateful to hear your voice. So really appreciate you taking the time again. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everybody. My first question to you is this. It's been about a week since we last spoke. How have things progressed? How are you doing? 
Uh, I'm doing well, and uh, life goes on, and people actually uh, start to st- have started to return to work, but with masks. And uh, but still, uh, getting in and out of communities in Beijing is still uh, very tightly controlled. Uh, you need you're supposed to show your ID, and if you're not, you do not belong to that community. Probably, uh, you you're not allowed to get in. Uh, so in and out, you will need uh, to show your ID and uh, get your t- temperatures checked. Uh, so I think that's that's that will I think that will continue uh, uh, for a, for a while. Yeah. So they, they, when you actually go and you you try to get into these communities, they have somebody standing guard checking IDs, and they will take your temperature right there, huh? Yes. Yes. Is that cause? I mean, just the the old uh, curiosity is getting me here. Does that cause any sort of traffic backup? Is there a major, you know, uh, influx of people trying to get into these communities? Uh, no, no. I mean, it, I think most of uh, most of the people trying to just return tr- return to your to their home. So uh, and also the temperature taking is just one second. Very 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 convenient. They have this handheld you know thing that they they they, they point it to your skin and uh, your temperature is red. No, oh, okay. Well, that's not too bad at all. Um, when you say yeah. that, when you say that people are going back to work, I guess I assume then that more and more businesses are are reopening their doors then. Yeah, absolutely. What does that mean as far as I know that you're in Beijing, so there's probably a lot of mass transit there. What does that mean in terms of people riding the subway, or as we call it here in D.C., the metro? Uh, are are the trains getting more crowded again? Uh, I I personally haven't been to the metro for a while, so I don't know what it's like uh, down there. Uh, but I, I would assume that it will be probably less people, but still will be... Uh, uh, a lot of people. Uh, I see a lot of cars on the on the road, uh, and it's like a pretty as busy as before. And uh, but there's one thing that the shared bike, uh, you know, the the shared bikes are not very much used like before. Okay. Um, and and what about um, the grocery stores and movie theaters and things like that? Are people going back out for entertainment? No, not not entertainment. But grocery stores are very uh, they're they're re- very, they're open regularly, and uh, I see uh, people you know lining up to, for their groceries. Uh, those are very regular. But movies are not uh, are not, uh, not not are not open yet. Not quite yet. All of the theaters around here are also uh, closed down for the time being. Um, I know that this morning I was reading a report that the uh, Chinese Basketball Association, which would be akin to the NBA here in the States, uh, they were getting ready to reopen in the middle of April, but that now has been pushed back by another month. But perhaps, you know, even with uh, just one more month of um, everybody kind of trying to take care of themselves and continuing to prevent the spread of the virus, you know, maybe maybe then we can see even more normalcy return and, and start to see things like uh, basketball games, sporting events, movie theaters start to reopen. Do you get the impression that everyone there is kind of ready for life to return back to normal? Um. I think not quite. I think still uh, the government still very uh, uh, concerned, still very cautious. Uh, and uh, although people are returning to work to get the the regular economy going, but still uh, there is a pressure uh, for uh, for everybody to watch out for any secondary breakouts. 
And what about all breaks? Yeah, <laughs> I got you. What about down in uh, in Wuhan, where the epicenter of the coronavirus was? Um, I understand that there have been some changes there, and people are actually free to leave the city. Yeah, as of uh, as of uh, March twenty fifth, they are they are free to leave their cities. But I think it depends on the receiving city uh, to decide if they are allowed in or uh, being quarantined or or what whatever. That's still a, a pretty big um, update there. I mean, that's that's very significant. They had been in complete lockdown since this thing began, correct? Uh, right. That's right. Okay. Until until March twenty fifth. Yeah. And what about um, international arrivals? How how are flights coming into the country being handled now? Right. International arrivals are very strictly diverted from large cities like Beijing, Shanghai, I think. Uh, but Beijing is definitely, and uh, people are very strictly screened and quarantined because uh, recently new additions uh, the, uh, of uh, di- uh, diagnosed cases are mostly from international rivals. That's yeah, you know, um, we see on the news here and in reports that um, the number of new cases in China are just plummeting. As a matter of fact, I would need to double check this, but I'm fairly certain. Uh, that the report out of China is that there are no new local cases of COVID-19. The only new cases that have been reported in recent days have, in fact, been from international arrivals. That sounds like what you're hearing as well. Yes, I have the same impression. Yes. Gotcha. Speaking of international stuff, I know that uh, there are some medical teams from China now that are being dispersed internationally to provide aid elsewhere. Is, Is that the case? Oh yes, uh, factories are actually uh, cranking up to make masks uh, to meet domestic needs and also international aid demands. And I think they have sent medical teams from you know some parts of the country to help some of the uh, other uh, you know other countries that have been uh, heavily affected, like uh, Italy and Iran. And let's talk about one of the big things here is making sure that our manufacturers are stepping up to the plate and producing medical masks and ventilators for what's expected to be an enormous crush of new patients with this uh, virus. Um, Are people there also really ratcheting up productions of these surgical masks, these N95 masks? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still uh, quite in demand, yeah. And what about um, vaccines? I mean, here's here's kind of the big question. What do you know about any vaccine trials that are being conducted over there? Here in the U.S., uh, the big news last week was that there was, in fact, the first person to enter the human clinical trials with a potential vaccine. What's going on in China on that front? Yeah, I, I read uh, some uh, different, uh, several pieces of news. Sorry, I read several pieces of news related to this, uh, I think in one piece of news, uh, I think the uh, the first uh, dose of uh, the vaccine has been injected into humans uh, to in phase one clinical trial, uh, but in another, I read that uh, people are still doing the animal um, animal phase of experiments, and uh, the human trial won't begin until the end of April. 
it still seems like in terms of vaccine development, that's still very much fast tracked when we've only heard reports of this virus beginning uh, in December. And here we are, what, just four months later to see uh, that we're actually in this phase of, of vaccine development. I think that that's that's pretty fast track, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Well, before I let you go, I mean, let's let's talk about you this past week. I mean, you're hearing all of these positive developments, people being left, uh, being allowed out of Wuhan. You're hearing about people returning back to work more and more. Are you feeling like, hey, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel here? Uh, I personally don't think so. I think uh, still uh, we still have uh, pressure of uh, of this uh, of this virus coming back, and uh, and also because we're so mobile a society. So I mean, I, uh, it's it's hard to say because so there's international travels and there's people who are uh, cured, but still they uh, they are bearing the the virus and. Uh, I don't know if uh, if these. I think the scientists don't know if uh, the virus would come back from you know people who have already infected uh, before. So I think it's still a constant uh, battle and constant uh, you know um, how can I say vigilance uh, against this. Let me let me put it to you this way then: Do you think that the worst is behind you at this point, where you are? Yeah, I would I would say at least uh, for now. Uh, we are we are better than one month ago, yeah. But still, uh, yeah, yeah. I would say so. Yeah, we're, we're better than one month ago, but still, we would be. I would be very cautious, uh, looking forward. Gotcha. Yeah, I know that there's a, a lot of concern with this. Is there going to be a second wave of an outbreak? So it sounds like that's something that's also weighing heavily on your mind. Yes. Uh, yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. Uh, real quick, uh, the last time I spoke with you, you told me that you had just done a, a video conference in front of about 2,000 people talking about the benefits of a plant-based diet with athletes. What have you been up to on the work front over the past week since we last spoke? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this past week has been very busy. I had uh, almost uh, one uh, one live streaming every, every day. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so well, um, some mostly it's, uh, it's like a PPT presentations to uh, I think uh, yeah there's one uh, in, in one presentation I gave to about uh, forty thousand people and that was uh, a big one, and also the the small the smallest number uh, is like five hundred. Cha, you're yeah, famous, so I, my friend. You are in demand. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I think uh, people are, you know, they they don't have much entertainment to do at home. So I think the it's it's a, it's the best time for them to learn some uh, nutrition and, uh, uh, you know, nutrition and health, right? So for the presentation in front of forty thousand uh, people, what were you discussing? Well, we we talk about uh, good nutrition. We talk about uh, how inflammation uh, would uh, would uh, you know. Uh, how, how can I say the information would affect our our general health and also what happens in situations like uh, you know the cough uh, cough nineteen. Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah, it's it's yeah. really interesting learning all about that here. The the inflammation aspect of it. You know, I I don't think that the typical person when they hear about a virus inflammation pops into their mind, but lo and behold, it plays a pretty big role, doesn't it? 
Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, this is pneumonia. So pneumonia is inflammation of the lung. And if you have some uh, basic inflammation already uh, before you have, you're uh, con uh, con uh, contacted by this virus, then you'll have double inflammation. So then, then you have uh, inflammation plus inflammation, then it will be much difficult to control. You know, on the other hand, if you are if you're on a good diet and you have good bacteria in your gut and then you'll generate some uh, short-chain fatty acids which is anti-inflammatory and this will be doing a lot of good so there are, I have looked into the literature and there's some uh, even uh, some 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 articles about you know how uh, these uh, people who fare much better if they have how can I say good bacteria in their gut uh, when they do the uh, the bone marrow graft uh, when their their in innate immune system have been killed by the irradiation and so so I think it is fascinating to look into these data and it's already there and uh, it tells us that if you are uh, you, you you have a good diet uh, like plant based mostly. Uh, or you know, uh, or completely vegan, then you will it will probably uh, fare out much better than the other guys. You know, you talk about this data already being there. That reminds me of a conversation I had with Dr. Hanna Kaliova, our colleague, just yesterday. Uh, we had an all-staff meeting, and she brought up this uh, study that was done all the way back around 1918, I believe, with the H1N1 outbreak, the original one, more than a century ago. And they studied wow. um, Seventh-day Adventists who primarily eat that plant-based diet, and they found that they fared so much better in terms of not just uh, – obviously, everybody's susceptible to this disease but or the virus, but when they got it, they recovered so much faster uh, if they yes. were eating that plant-based diet. And they've known that for more than a century now at this point. So it's it's very interesting. Wow. And that was even yeah, – I would like to – yeah. She even pulled up an article that was written in the newspaper all the way back then. It's fascinating. Amazing, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I would like to read into that article. Yeah, yeah, I will. I will definitely put the two of you in touch. I think that that would be uh, really interesting Great. for you to to bring up the next time you talk to forty thousand people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Ja. Well, thank you so very much for your time, my friend, and bringing us the update. And you continue to stay safe. It is so good to know that Dr. Jia Zhu is able to continue his mission under these difficult circumstances. And how great is it that he's amassed such an enormous audience over there? I remember when someone first introduced me to him a couple of years back, they said that this guy was like a nutrition rock star over in China. And the more I speak with Ja, the more I realize that nothing could be more accurate than that description. That's so cool. And of course, we continue to wish him all the best as he continues his work over in China. And that seems so, so, so important now. Perhaps now more than ever. But let's continue our own mission now by examining the condition that poses the second highest risk for someone who's infected with the coronavirus. Talking about diabetes. 
Dr. Cyrus Kambata, a type 1 diabetic himself, is here now to shed light on why the virus can be such a scary prospect for those struggling with insulin resistance. More importantly, what can they do to help bring down that risk while also boosting their immunity? It's going to be talking about everything from steps they can take to foods they should be eating. And plus, we're going to get a little bit nerdy. We're going to get a little bit scientific and talk about the different forms of immunity. All of this is important information, even if you're not a diabetic yourself there is a better than good chance that you know someone who is. And that makes this information critical for every one of us. So here now via Skype, Dr. Cyrus Kambata. Rolling along here on a special edition of the Exam Room Podcast brought to you by the Physicians Committee with the weight loss champion Chuck Carroll. Today we're looking at diabetes and the connection with COVID-19. We hear a lot about comorbidities with this disease and can this increase the severity of the symptoms if you become infected? All of the information points to yes, you can. And today we're taking a headstrong look right at diabetes. And for that, we welcome to the show our friend, Dr. Cyrus Kambata. Welcome back to the show, my man. How you doing, Chuck? Good to see you as always. It's The pleasure is all mine. And I must say, uh, first of all, congratulations, you and Robbie, for Mastering Diabetes. Your new book, Mastering Diabetes, is a New York Times bestseller, my friend. That's awesome. Yes, thank you for your help on that one. Yeah, we, uh, we released the book on February 18th of this last year. And uh, we got a phone call a week later told me, telling us that the book had become a New York Times bestseller because there were a lot of people interested and there were a lot of sales that happened right off the bat. So I was very, very, very cool to hear. That It's, it's so great. Um, and obviously you have the audio book, you've got the Kindle version, you've got the hardcover. All, it's, it's all right there for you. And we'll put the link up on Amazon. And I think that, one, the material in there is really, I mean, it's just stellar. But the other reason is... The amount of people, the number of people in the world who actually have diabetes is just astounding. And that's why I'm really privileged to have you on the show today because this information is going to help a lot of people. You're right. You're right. It's, it's actually – I would say the statistics are astounding. You know, I remember back when I was like in the 80s and 90s, they would always come up with these statistics. and say, oh, you know, by 2020, one in seven people are going to be obese. One in six people are going to be living with diabetes. We're in 2020 right now, and if you look at the statistics, there are currently 30 million people in the United States alone that are living with some form of diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2 or pre-diabetes, diagnosed. So 30 million people have been diagnosed. There are 85 million more people who have not been diagnosed. So you put those two numbers together, you get 115 million people which is roughly one-third of the U.S. population. You walk out in public, one out of every three people you look at has some kind of blood glucose dysregulation, and that right there is the gateway to other chronic diseases, and that's why it's such a big deal. 
And I believe that those numbers are expected to keep climbing um, for the foreseeable future. So it's important that we get this kind of information out. Uh, and by the way, uh, if you're listening to this right now or watching this on YouTube, I highly encourage you to go back and listen or watch the previous episodes that I've done with Cyrus and his partner, Robbie Barbero, um, because the information that has just been put forth on the show is unlike anything um, that we've ever discussed before. It's so thorough. It's so in-depth. And I know for a fact, even a friend of mine uh, who has had diabetes for more than a decade um, was just so thankful uh, when he listened back to that episode. He was like, oh, my God, I had no idea. And uh, I'm, I'm really, really happy for him. And so now when he goes to the store, he sends me pictures of uh, various vegan items that he's, he's gladly trying, you know. So that's progress, man, and that's, that's due to you and Robbie. Well, that's great. And I actually have to give, uh, give a lot of credit and give a lot of thanks to Dr. Neil Barnard himself because – you know, we didn't come up with the mastering diabetes method. We we weren't the ones who, who who really paved the way for the true effectiveness of a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet. Dr. Barnard has been such a profound advocate of eating this way, and we've sort of taken a lot of the information that he's created and built upon it and added more elements to the system to create a lifestyle, uh, a method that is is one of the most effective ways to reverse insulin resistance in all forms of diabetes. And, you know, we really consider Dr. Barnard to be one of our heroes. All right, man. Well, let's dive into it today, talking specifically about COVID-19, diabetes, and the immune system. The two go hand in hand. Just a quick refresher before we dive in. It's been all over the news, but if you could tell us a little bit more about what the coronavirus is, just to kind of set the table, that would be great. For sure, for sure. So the coronavirus is, you know, it's become a global pandemic. And a pandemic is basically it's different than an epidemic. An epidemic is usually geographically isolated. A pandemic has no borders, meaning that it basically can, you know, it can travel all around the world and it can affect anybody of any shape, any color, any size. So the coronavirus, one of the things that makes it such a pain in the butt is that the coronavirus is an RNA virus. And what that means is that unlike other viruses that are DNA viruses, an RNA virus enables the virus to basically mutate very quickly. And um, the reason for that is because when a DNA virus gets inside of a host, the DNA virus requires the replication machinery of the host. In other words, if you're a virus, you basically have a protein coat plus DNA on the inside. You get inside of a human being, you then uh, attack very specific cells, and what you, what you require in that specific scenario is you require the DNA replication machinery of the host cell in order to replicate your own DNA, okay? That's how most of our DNA viruses work. But an RNA virus basically encodes its own replication machinery. Mm. So what that means is that it doesn't re rely on the host to actually replicate its own RNA. It can replicate its own RNA quickly, and when it does so, it can actually, there's random mutations that come in during the RNA replication process, and as a result of that, over the course of time, what you end up with these things are called um, mutant clouds. And a mutant cloud is basically a whole collection of mutants of the original virus that then make it very hard to create a vaccine against. So, you know, you're trying to create a vaccine against one specific RNA strand, but then that RNA strand has already replicated itself and mutated hundreds if not thousands of times. And as a result of that, now vaccine development becomes extremely complicated. So that's one of the things that makes uh, the coronavirus so tricky uh, in this day and age. 
Let's talk specific more about immunity because there are more than one form of immunity. Um, there's something called innate immunity. What is that? Yeah, okay, so there's, there's two types of immunity. There's innate immunity and there's adaptive immunity. So a simple way to think about the difference between the two of them is that innate immunity refers to uh, your non-specific defense mechanisms uh, against many different types of viruses and bacteria and foreign antigens. Okay, so this is, you can think of it as basically your, your general immune system. Okay, re- people are referring to, you know, like, how's your immunity? Like, how do I boost my immunity? And what they mean by that is, how do I boost my innate immunity, which is, again, non-specific? Then you have adaptive immunity. And adaptive immunity is slightly different because adaptive immunity is the immunity that you have to a very specific antigen. So as an example, uh, if you, uh, if, if there's a particular virus, like chickenpox as an example, okay? So you get hit with chickenpox, your adaptive immune system basically learns what the antigen is. It then mounts a response to that antigen. It then creates what's called an adaptive immune response to that, to that antigen. And then as a result of that, the next time you get hit with that antigen, it's much less effective because you already have the adapted immune response to it, right? So I think one of the things that people are looking for in today's world right now is they're trying to find ways to boost their immune system such that they become less at risk for the development of or, or for uh, – being infected with the coronavirus, right? Yeah. So what's really important to understand here is that the scientific world knows very little right now about the adaptive immune response to the coronavirus because it's so new. It's brand new and we're, we're learning, you know, all the time. But what, what you can do as an individual is you can boost your innate immunity. And your innate immunity is something that you have control over because it's, it's governed by your lifestyle. It's governed by how much sleep you get, how much exercise you get, the types of foods you eat, the types of foods you don't eat. And we can talk a lot more in detail about what those are. Um, and so I want people to understand that like, really what we're talking about today is how to boost your innate immunity. And your adaptive immunity is something that the scientific world is going to continue to learn about over the course of time. For sure. And I am looking forward to getting some specific foods because I think that that's just it. It's people, they want to hear this and they want to be able to formulate that shopping list, you know, and just know, hey, this is exactly what I need to be eating right now to boost my uh, innate immunity. Um, Here's the simple question, uh, and it's the straightforward one. If someone has high blood pressure, if somebody does have diabetes, are they, in fact, at a higher risk for becoming infected with COVID-19? You know, if you go to Google right now and you, you know, look up any information about, about coronavirus, what you're going to find is that it's almost like people with diabetes are being like targeted and people with hypertension are being targeted as being the people who are the highest risk. Mm-hmm. And the question really becomes, well, why is that the case? I mean, first of all, is that true? And second of all, why is that the case? Okay. So it turns out that the people who have the highest or who are at the greatest risk for death from the coronavirus are people that either are hypertensive, who have high blood pressure, and people who have a high A1C value. And just to be crystal clear here, your A1C is a marker of your three-month average blood glucose. Okay, so if, I were, if you were to go to the laboratory right now and go get your A1C tested, what you would be looking for or what you want is a number that's less than 5.7%. And what that means is basically there's, there's hemoglobin inside of red blood cells, 
and there are billions, if not trillions of red blood cells that are floating in your cardiovascular system at all times, okay? So the hemoglobin is an oxygen trap. So when you take a giant deep breath in, what ends up happening is that oxygen goes into your lungs, it gets passed into your blood, and the catcher's mitt inside of your, uh, inside of your red blood cells is hemoglobin. So it attaches to oxygen, it then carries that oxygen to tissues throughout your body and then releases that oxygen so that those tissues can get oxygenated, okay? So your hemoglobin A1C is a marker of how much glucose has stuck to hemoglobin. That's really the problem. So hemoglobin has a sort of like sticky nature to it. And as the glucose level in your blood continues to rise over the course of time, more and more and more glucose ends up sticking to hemoglobin. So when you will get your hemoglobin A1C tested, really what they're looking for is the amount of glycosylated or glucose attached hemoglobin. And in a normal individual, the number is less than 5% of all hemoglobin molecules should be glycosylated, right? But if you have developed prediabetes, then your number is going to be somewhere between 5.7 and 6.4%. And then if you have developed type 2 diabetes, your number will be 6.5% or greater. Right. So an A1C is just like a, a very good indicator of, you know, in this particular situation, your risk for, um, you know, death from coronavirus. Okay. So yeah. the trick is, number one, how do, you, how do you eat to lower your A1C value? That's something that's very, very, very important in today's world. Um, and then secondarily, if you're living with hypertension or high blood pressure, then um, you're also at an advanced risk as well. The school is in session here today with Dr. Cyrus Kambata. This is outstanding. I love this stuff. Okay. So, <laughs> so here's something that's also very interesting and I think can be kind of confusing in today's world. Okay. You've probably read online. You've probably seen it in the news that the people who are at the highest risk are also the elderly. And they say, okay, well, you know. Don't worry, if you're 30 years old or if you're 40 years old, your risk for, for death from the coronavirus is very low. But we do care about people who are 50 years old, 60 years old, 70 years old, because they're at a much greater risk. Okay? And the answer is, yes, that is a true statement, because as you age, your innate immune system goes down. Basically, you become more immunocompromised over the course of time. That's a true statement. However, just because you are young, does not exclude you from being at risk from the, for, for death from the coronavirus because you can be young, but you can be either hypertensive or have a high A1C or both, and that right there elevates your risk, and it can be similar to somebody who's age 50 or 60 or greater. Make right. sense? Yeah, it does, and, and I think that that makes even more sense when you start to think about how now we're hearing, yes, that you're more at risk if you're elderly, but we're hearing about more and more cases with younger people and nine times out of ten, it seems, with those cases, there is an underlying condition, as it's put. They don't specify what it is, but with the rate of diabetes, one could hypothesize that a good chunk of them may be diabetic. 100%. And just like we said, there's 85 million people around the United States who literally don't even know that they have high blood glucose. And so they might think, oh, I don't have an underlying condition, but in reality, they do have an underlying condition, and therefore, they're more susceptible to infection. So here is the big question, and uh, get out your pens and pencils and write this stuff down uh, if you're listening or watching, because now we are going to talk about specific foods. That is really, I think, what people will be taking away most from this podcast, is knowing what foods are going to put them in the best position to boost up that immunity. So, specific to diabetes, what is on your list, my friend? Okay, specific to diabetes, uh, 
the first there's so many foods that we can't talk about, but one of the most important classes of foods that we that I would love to talk about are cruciferous vegetables. Cruciferous vegetables, one of the most powerful immune boosting, health promoting foods that that exists in the grocery store. Period. End of story. So, cruciferous vegetables include things like arugula, bok choy, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage cauliflower, collard greens, kale, kohlrabi, mustard greens, radishes, turnip greens, and watercress, okay? So yeah, a whole collection of them. If you don't know what the, you know, if you, if you can't remember all these, you can literally go to Google and say, what are cruciferous vegetables? Look at a picture and then go to the grocery store and get them. Oh, we're okay. going to put that in the episode notes for this thing too, man. We're going to make it easy. So if you're listening on Apple Podcast, all you need to do is scroll right on down. Boom. There's your list. Make it easy. Yeah, man. Okay. Now, so um, cruciferous vegetables are incredibly powerful, uh, again, innate immune boosters. And another thing to think about, too, is that the method of treatment of cruciferous vegetables is also important. So uh, try and eat your, your cruciferous vegetables as raw as possible. And they have the most uh, sort of like immune boosting power when eaten uh, as raw as possible. If you want to cook them, if you need to cook them, if you have to cook them for any reason to make them more palatable, that is totally fine. But just try and uh, heat them at a low heat for a, the smallest amount of time possible. So as an example, if you're cooking cauliflower and you say, you know, I don't like to eat this stuff raw or it makes me gassy when I eat it raw, <laughs> then steam it. Steam it for five minutes and just get it to be a little bit more tender. Okay, keep the heat relatively low, boom, now you can have it, and it's still going to have a lot of immune-boosting properties. That's great. A lot of this stuff is you know, easily something that you could throw into a salad, or you know, even when you talk about things like cauliflower, you can use that as a, as a dip, or something to, you know, to dip in hummus, something like that. You know, knock it out that way. So no pretty, pretty easy stuff. What about um, green leafy vegetables? That's, that's the thing that we always hear about since we were kids and watched Popeye, you know, strong to the finish because I eat me spinach, right? So how big of a role are they going to play right now? Oh, they're going to play a huge, huge role. And part of the reason is because green leafy vegetables are, are the most nutrient-dense foods that we know of, period, end of story. Okay? So when we're talking about nutrient-dense foods, what we're really talking about is foods that don't necessarily have very many calories. Like the calorie count is, is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter. What we're talking about is foods that have the highest qu quantity of micronutrients per bite, including vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals, okay? So green leafy vegetables, whether you're talking about spinach or arugula or kale or Swiss chard or uh, cabbage, these foods have an incredibly high micronutrient density. And as a result of that, they're good. I mean, even if you're, if you're trying to boost your immune system, go ahead, eat as many as you want. Um, but in addition to that, even if you're not trying to boost your immune system and you're just trying to uh, you know, improve your overall metabolic health, then green leafy vegetables are a phenomenal addition to your diet. And I recommend getting at least one serving, if not two servings per day, a serving being approximately one cup's worth. Oh, that's pretty easy to do, especially if you're a fan of smoothies. You just get that handful, boom, throw it in the blender, man. There's, there's one serving right there. Yeah, it's really not that hard to do. You're right. You know, you can put it into a salad. You can throw it into a smoothie. Like I said, you can even steam them if you want to. 
And when you steam them, you take a large volume and it reduces into a much smaller volume. So it's just kind of easier to get them inside. There's nothing wrong with a little steamed spinach. It's actually quite good. It's actually really tasty. <laughs> I mean, the old me would never have said that, but steamed spinach is legit. Like, there is there is some serious flavor right there. Um, one of the things that you told me that you wanted to talk about was plants being effective mediators. What do you mean by an effective mediator? Okay, so so there's uh, one of my favorite review articles online is um, is a paper called Immunity, Plants as Effective Mediators. And it's basically a review article that goes through and it, and it talks about various different types of medicinal plants that have known potent biological activity. And so when we're talking about effective mediators, we're talking about foods that have known immune modulating activity or immune boosting activity. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of science actually about which foods uh, are known to have potent biological activity specifically for immune function. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we can walk through all of them. So the first one is onions and garlic. There you go. Pucker up. Be sure to kiss your significant other after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure. Yeah, make sure you go to the gym right after eating one of these garlic rich <laughs> meals. So garlic and onions, they contain these organosulfur compounds. Um, one of them is called allicin, and there's a whole collection of names that are hard to pronounce. Um, and these compounds have been shown to increase the function of your own antioxidant enzymes inside of tissues like your muscle and your liver and your pancreas and your brain. And these antioxidant enzymes for the super nerds out there are called things like glutathione peroxidase or glutathione S-transferase, or cytochrome B5, cytochrome P450, superoxide dismutase. All of these are just sort of fancy scientific names given to particular enzymes that are considered antioxidant enzymes. So what happens is that you eat the onion, you eat the garlic. These organosulfur compounds are the biologically active compounds that then go and boost the function and the activity of your own antioxidant defense systems, which gives you a general overall boost in your innate immunity. Somebody once told me that ginger might fall into this category as well. I get that a lot of times when I eat that veggie sushi. You know, you get that little pallet of ginger off to the side. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah so tasty. Oh, man. Uh, I used to not like – I used to have uh, – I used to think that I was allergic to vegetables. <laughs> Been there. <laughs> yeah, I think we all were as kids. A lot of the, the, the foods on this list – I love eating now because obviously I'm a plant-based eater. It's fun for me. You know, you develop the taste buds for it. But I remember back when I was a kid, um, I would literally take Brussels sprouts and I would pretend to eat them and I would kind of like take them off my plate and I'd go outside and I'd get my slingshot out and I'd take my Brussels sprouts and I would slingshot them (laughs) over to the neighbor's yard. Right, I hate that much, right? And I remember ginger was just like was repulsive to me as a kid because it's such a strong flavor, right? That's great. But as far as the uh, the immune boosting activity of ginger is concerned, uh, ginger is absolutely it's one of the most it's one of the cheapest and most potent immune modulating or immune boosting foods that it's available in the grocery store today. I mean, you can find it everywhere. Uh, if you can get your hands on some organic ginger, even better. If you can't, don't even worry about it. Um, and there's actually a few studies that have shown that ginger is especially effective in fighting specifically against respiratory infections, which coronavirus is. Okay? Mm. So that's one thing. Okay? Am I saying that if you have ginger, you're going to reduce your risk for coronavirus? No. I do not want people to misinterpret this. I'm saying that there's evidence that ginger can specifically help against antigens that cause respiratory infections. 
and it just turns out the coronavirus happens to be a respiratory infection. So why not add it into your diet? Right. Okay. And then in addition to that, uh, ginger has also, you know, there's, there's evidence to show that it is very effective at um, reducing arthritis as well as allergies as well as gout. So it's, it has multiple different activities and multiple different effects in other tissues. And it's a phenomenal addition to your diet that's very easy to get your hands on and very tasty. Um, what else is on this list, my friend? Uh, so we talked about ginger. Give me some others. Okay, cool. So the next one that I want to go into is actually green tea. Uh, so green tea is considered a extremely powerful antioxidant. Okay. And so, um, the class of molecules that green tea, one of the class of molecules that green tea is known for are these things called catechins, which is spelled C A T E C H I N S. And so catechins are a whole family of antioxidant compounds. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, um, there's one in particular that is like the, the, the most famous of all of them, and it's called EGCG. So, so EGCG is considered the most powerful catechin, and um, it's present in green tea such that when you make a glass of green tea, you're actually getting an antioxidant boost every single time. Now, um, I'm not a master of exactly how tea is made, but I do know that you can take green tea and you can ferment it into black tea. And when you take green tea and ferment it and it turns into black tea, the EGCG content decreases. So there's still some left over in the black tea, but if you want the most powerful antioxidant boost, then you try and eat the least fermented, most whole green tea as possible. I'm just thinking about the antioxidant and, and just kind of go with me here. I've, I've talked to people uh, who studied the blue zones. I don't recall if this was Dan Buettner specifically who said this, but one of the things that they found was a commonality in people who live longer is uh, that they drink green tea. I think somebody said somewhere in the ballpark, and I need to source this, so don't take it as the gospel, but you know, drink, uh, aim for three cups of green tea uh, per day. And I think m just maybe it's the antioxidant factor there that you were talking about that plays such a significant role. I don't know. Yeah, so, so that's a really good question. Um, here's the thing. Uh, I like to think of scientists as being like very well-intentioned, but in general, human beings are like – human beings are stupid in comparison to food, okay? And the reason I say that is because, <laughs> you know, what, what, the way that scientists basically try and study food is you take a food and um, you, you prepare it in some way. You do some kind of extract for it, and then you run it on any number of laboratory machines, whether it's a – a GCMS or an HPLC, and you're basically trying to like identify the actual compounds in that food that have biological activity. You then isolate those compounds, and then you run experiments either in a petri dish, and then you eventually do it in humans. Okay, and the answer is something like ginger, something like green tea. Okay, these these foods have thousands and thousands and thousands of biologically active components. And we do our best to try and name them and draw chemical structures for them and understand what they are and how they function and maybe even put it into like a little supplement pill or put it into a drink. But at the end of the day, a whole food has so many biologically active components that you and I or the scientific community will never, never know and never be able to name and classify and fully understand how they all work together. Mm. Okay? I believe so that's that. why. Again, eating things in their whole food form is always the best because I can sit here and I can tell you, okay, well, green tea is antioxidant rich, but green tea is also rich in a whole bunch of other biologically active compounds that literally don't even have names yet. 
right? So the antioxidant power is something that the scientific community has studied and we do know something about it. And it's another great way to boost your innate immune system one more time. What about something like echinacea? I remember that my mom was keen on that growing up. She had echinacea and golden seal root tea, but echinacea, I know, made your list. Yeah, for sure. So echinacea is another really powerful immune modulator as well. Um, I recently have come across some reading that that not all echinacea in the store is created equal. And that you know some echinaceas, um, you can get it directly from the flower. Some of it you can get from the root. Some of them you can get from the stem. And each one of them, the, the preparation has a different biological activity. And then in addition to that, the alcohol content of the tincture itself has a different effect on how powerful it can be. So um, again, I'm not an echinacea expert by any stretch of imagination, but there are plenty of studies that show that echinacea can definitely boost your innate immune system. So it's definitely worth adding to your regimen if it's not something that's already there, for sure. And echinacea has been shown in the literature to be very powerful against both viral as well as bacterial uh, infections. That's that's pretty good. That's a one-two punch. That's appreciated. Uh, turmeric, that's something that a lot of people have in their kitchen. Talk to me. Yeah, turmeric. I remember back in when I was in graduate school back in 2000 and between 2007 and 2012, there was a uh, there was a girl in our one of the uh, fellow graduate students who was studying the effects of curcumin, which is the the biologically active component of turmeric. And she was demonstrating in a petri dish how powerful curcumin was. And I remember looking at that stuff thinking like, wow, I had never, I had no idea that turmeric could be so powerful. And this was before turmeric became a big deal. Literally six months later, all of a sudden, boom, massive explosion of information about how powerful turmeric is. And anywhere you go, you'll now find that turmeric is considered one of the most powerful antioxidants that you can find in whole food form anywhere. Mm. Very widely studied, and it's definitely something that's worth adding to your food. One thing that's very powerful about uh, turmeric, or one, one way to treat turmeric that can make it more powerful, is to combine turmeric with black pepper. Okay, so if, you're, if you have some spice in your cupboard, you know, say you're making a, you know, making a salad, and you want to make a salad dressing, okay? take some ginger, put it into a cup. Take some vinegar, put it into a cup. Take a small pinch of turmeric, put it in the cup. Grind some fresh black pepper into that cup as well. The combination of the turmeric and the black pepper together makes it such that the turmeric is activated and it's, it's much more powerful. It's between 100 and 1,000 times more potent. So as a result of that, when you go put that salad dressing on your salad, you, then you consume it. Now the turmeric has extra fighting power. And as a result of that, the black power, the black pepper is the one that sort of like gave it a little bit of a boost. Wow. It's, it's again, who would know this? But again, scientists have studied this and it's really powerful information. I had no idea. That's pretty cool, man. Um, Indian gooseberries, that's that's another one that's on the list. I am not familiar with these whatsoever. Okay. Talk to me, man. Okay, so you're familiar with Dr. Michael Greger from uh, Nutrition Facts? Of course. You might know him. Okay, so uh, many years ago, I was watching some videos about uh, anti specific anti-diabetic uh, foods. And he had, some, he had a whole series of videos on this stuff called AMLA, which is A-M-L-A. And I was like, AMLA, what is this stuff? So I started learning about it, and it turns out that Amla is a name for Indian gooseberries, okay? So Indian gooseberries are grown in India. They're about the size of a grape. Um, they're fluorescent green, and they're pretty hard to get your hands on, okay? Now, in India, they've used uh, Amla in Ayurvedic medicine for thousands of years, and they use it. It's literally like a panacea. They use it for everything you can possibly think of. 
whether it's digestive inflammation, whether it's a headache, whether it's something went wrong with your skin, whether you're living with diabetes, whether you have fatty liver disease, whether your kidneys are failing, it doesn't matter. They're just like, oh, take Amla, take Amla, take Amla. So I started looking at this information and I was like, huh, there must be some scientific understanding of what these berries are actually doing. Mm -hmm. So dig a little deeper. And it turns out that there are, there are modern evidence-based studies that demonstrate that Indian gooseberries are the single most powerful cholesterol-reducing food ever discovered. Wow. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So it's the single most powerful cholesterol-reducing food ever discovered. Secondarily, it's a very powerful blood glucose reducer, and it's been head-to-head -head compared against uh, glucose-lowering medication. And it's shown that as little as one quarter to one half of a berry per day, I'm talking like imagine eating a quarter or a half of a grape per day. Yeah. Just that small amount is as effective as some of the leading diabetes oral medications. Holy cow. Yeah. And then in addition to that, it's also an effective blood pressure reducer. So you have a triple whammy. It lowers cholesterol, it lowers glucose, and it lowers your blood pressure. Okay? So, and in addition to that, one more thing is that it's, it's the most powerful whole food antioxidant ever discovered by humans. Okay? So there's this scale that uh, scientists have discovered or that, that they've created called the ORAC scale, Oxygen Radical Absorbance Capacity Scale, O-R-A-C. And what you do is you test a food and you figure out its ability, its, its antioxidant um, power, and then you give it an ORAC value and then you rank order foods on this ORAC scale. Okay? So things like turmeric, and acai berries and black raspberries, they rank in the low thousands, you know, somewhere from like 5,000 all the way upwards of 20,000 or so. Amla or Indian gooseberries has an ORAC value of 261,500. It's literally another ballpark. It's a completely different order of magnitude higher than the rest of these like traditionally antioxidant rich foods. And so... Adding umla berries to your diet, if you can get your hands on them, either through, you know, you can search on Amazon, you can find them, or you can go to an Indian grocery store and get your hands on them, is a very powerful way to boost your, again, your innate immune system, because it's antioxidant rich, it's also anti-diabetic, it's a cholesterol reducer, and it lowers your blood pressure. So why not drop your A1C value, why not drop your blood pressure, which happen to be the two comorbidities that elevate your risk for uh, COVID-19? Okay, and you get an antioxidant boost that boosts your overall immune system. Holy it's very, cow! Very, very powerful food. You drop all that, and now you're dropping a huge knowledge bomb on the exam room today. That's amazing. Have you ever tasted yeah. one of these things? You say they're <laughs> hard to get your hands on. Yeah, they're they're hard to get your hands on. If you were to eat an amla berry raw, um, it's one of those foods that like makes you pucker up so badly that it's like you're just it's like hard to even fathom how you would get these into your mouth. So there's a number of different products. You know, you can, um, there's, there's like umla tea, there's umla drinks, there's dehydrated umla, there's fresh umla, there's nitrogen packed umla, there's frozen umla, you name it. Just get your hands on this stuff and start putting it into your diet because when you do, it makes a, a profound impact. It can make a profound impact on your blood glucose, your cholesterol, and your blood pressure at the same time. All right, real quick, we've touched a lot on the foods that we should be eating. Uh, quickly, let's go through some of the foods that have that negative effect on the immune system. Super important, especially right now with the pandemic. Oh, man. Okay. Yes, foods that 
I would highly recommend trying to limit or avoid from your diet. Include, number one, processed meat. Processed meat include things like bacon and ham and salami and these like turkey cold cuts, okay? These foods are known to be class one carcinogens, meaning that they, there's, no, there's no denying the connection of uh, you know, increased consumption and increased risk for cancer. This has been established already. Okay, so they're class one carcinogens and there's actually a substantial body of research that shows that when you eat processed meat, your risk for diabetes goes up between 20 and 60%. Wow. Cut out processed meats from your diet entirely if you can. If you're, if you're eating significant quantities of them, do your best to try and limit your intake of them. It's going to have a profound effect on your metabolic health right off the bat. Number two, full fat dairy products. There's a lot of misleading information, a lot of hype on the internet about why dairy products are healthy for you and especially drinking or eating full fat dairy products. Please, please, please do not believe the hype. Okay? Dairy <laughs> products are known to be uh, to, to um, significantly alter your metabolic health. They're known to increase your risk for a number of metabolic conditions. And um, if I were you, I would highly recommend reducing your intake, or if not eliminating your intake of all dairy products, especially full fat. Ah, oh, man, the bulletproof people aren't going to like that one. What else you got? Okay, number three, refined sugars and artificial sweeteners. I mean, we're in 2020, and I'm still telling people to try and limit their intake of refined sugars and artificial sweeteners. I would think that by now, as a society, we would be beyond this point. But the problem is that food manufacturers pump this stuff into products all over the shelves, okay? Packaged products contain refined sugars and artificial sweeteners. If you don't believe me, just pick up any package and look and try and find names that end in OL, like sorbitol, mannitol, okay? The OL is basically one of the indicators that it's a sugar, that's a manufactured sugar, okay? And um, you can find this stuff all over the place. You can find high fructose corn syrup, uh, you can find dextrose, mannose, you name it, it's all over the place. Um, limit, if not eliminate, your intake of refined sugars. However, there's also this, this, this theory, this myth, that if you eat fruit, as an example, that fruit is just going to be nothing but, it's going gonna, it's gonna to behave the same way as a refined sweetener. So fruit equals sugar, sugar equals something that's going to make you fatter and more diabetic and increase your cholesterol. Please do not believe that. Okay? The entire mastering diabetes method, like we talked about earlier, is founded upon the principle, and Dr. Barnard will say this as well, is founded upon the principle that eating whole carbohydrate-rich foods, like fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains, is the foundation for lowering your risk for chronic disease. And fruits, yes, they're sweet, for sure, but when people tell you that fruit equals sugar, please don't believe that, it's absolutely not true. Uh, what about fried food, man? You were talking about sugar being everywhere. Fried food seems to be all over the place as well. Oh, my God. Fried food is so hard to escape these days. But, you know, if you choose to eat outside at a restaurant um, or you go to a cafe, just be aware that fried foods are everywhere. Okay. Um, fried foods, especially especially if they're re fried in reused oil, which is very common in, um, in many restaurants, or if they're fried in partially hydrogenated oils. Okay. Please try and eliminate this from your diet. Partially hydrogenated oils are just a, uh, it's a conduit for trans fats, and trans fats are without question um, known uh, metabolic uh, damagers, right? They increase your LDL cholesterol, they increase your risk for atherosclerosis or hardening of your blood vessels, and that increases your blood pressure, okay? So if you can, try and eliminate fried foods altogether, and that's going to have a, 
a very positive impact on your uh, on your metabolic health. The final one that I will say here are foods that you can try and minimize or avoid are packaged and processed foods that have unpronounceable ingredients. Okay, this is a very simple technique that you can do, that you can that you can utilize. These foods include things like pastries, cookies, candies, chips, sodas, crackers. Okay, these are all the things that are like in the center of the grocery store. They're in boxes, they're in packages, and they have all these fancy writing all over them. Okay, the reason why unpronounceable ingredients are important to pay attention to is because if you flip it over, if you flip the package over and you start reading the ingredients in there, if there's anything more than four or five ingredients on the label, that's your first suspect that this is probably not a health food. Secondarily, (laughs) if there's words on there that you cannot pronounce or that your grandmother would have no idea what they are, or most importantly, if you cannot draw these things on a piece of paper, please don't buy it. Please don't eat it. Okay. If you look at the ingredients and it says dates, almonds, peanuts, bananas, you can draw all of those. But if it says D-alpha-tocopherol acetate, okay, and you don't know what that is, chances are you might not want to be eating that food because it's either made with synthetic ingredients or it's made with refined ingredients and both of them can have negative metabolic effects. I like that drawing idea because it's not like you can draw sorbitol. Like sorbitol doesn't grow on trees. You know, <laughs> how would one begin to draw that? You know, it probably look like some random cell. I don't know. I don't know. But that that is a good test. Exactly right. All right, we're in the home stretch, man. Let's uh, wrap this up. A lot of people right now cooped up in their homes. They've been ordered to either stay there or they're there voluntarily practicing social isolation. Man, sometimes you just got to go out and get in a nice walk to improve your mood, your mental clarity, just to feel better about things emotionally. But how important is exercise in terms of boosting the immune system, again, specific to people with diabetes? 100%. So exercise is paramount to, uh, to excellent metabolic health, and it's also paramount to excellent immunity. Excellent innate immunity, okay? So um, here's a simple way to think about exercise. Your food is a very powerful way to boost your, your, to either increase or decrease the power of your innate immune system, okay? Exercise itself has a very profound effect on the way that your innate immune system also functions. Now, there's, uh, there's a whole bunch of papers on this topic. There's one paper in particular that I absolutely love. Um, and this one's called Exercise and the Regulation of Immune Function. And it's a, it's a review paper that comprehensively analyzes, you know, how does exercise affect your immune functioning um, in various scenarios. And a couple of things, a couple of things that they, they write here, I'll quote, are, number one, it is generally accepted that prolonged periods of intensive exercise can depress immunity, where regular moderate intensity exercise is actually immune boosting and beneficial. So that's the difference between running a marathon and taking a walk. That's exactly right. It's a difference between um, you know going to a high intensity interval training class and doing that for sixty minutes multiple times per week versus um, just going out and getting you know going for a bike ride. That's much lower intensity and you can do it for a longer duration of time. Okay. There's this on the internet. You'll see over and over and over again that people say. The only way to exercise, the most powerful way to exercise is to do HIIT, high intensity interval training. And it is true. There are, there are specific scenarios and specific athletes for which high intensity interval training is very powerful. Okay. But for your average person, 
It is not necessary to exercise at high intensity. It's not even necessary to exercise for long periods of time. All you got to do is carve out something like a 30 to 45 minute window within your day and do moderate intensity exercise. Move your body. Do a combination of resistance exercises like push-ups against the wall or air squats or lunges, okay, and a um, cardiovascular exercise such as walking, jogging, running, biking, swimming, hiking, okay? If you can, if you can uh, do both types of exercise and you can get in between 30 and 45 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, not only is that going to improve your metabolic health, but it's also going to boost your immune system and you may not even know that, okay? Yep. Now, elite athletes, they, they frequently report symptoms that are associated with upper respiratory tract infections um, when they are training heavily or when they are preparing for competition, okay? And again, the reason for that is because they're training at very high intensity and they're training for long periods of time. So during heavy training, it's very common for athletes to get a suppressed immune response, which is why I'm advocating for you to actually lower the intensity and become a very frequent exerciser. And by doing so, you can actually boost your immune response and who doesn't want that. All right. So basically, don't overtax your system. I mean, that's kind of what it boils down to. If you're an elite athlete doing all sorts of crazy things, your, your lungs, that respiratory system is going to be working overtime. Things get tired. Things just get tired if you want to put it in simple form, right? Absolutely. No question about it. Well, look, this is, uh, this is all really, really important stuff, and I, I cannot thank you, Cyrus, for taking the time to join us today and shedding some light on a lot of this. I think that a lot of people are going to get so much out of this, and uh, thank you for introducing us to Amla Berries, uh, because that is just incredible. My goal in life is now to get my hands on some of those things. I don't uh -huh. know you know, how I'm going to go about doing that, but that is my goal in life. So, uh, hello, Internet, here I come. Yeah, there you go. I mean, just go to Amazon. Um, there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of different products um, on Amazon that you can purchase that are that have amla in them. Um, one thing that I told you is that amla berries are very, very sour, and so you can get like a raw amla powder, um, and you can try and consume that, but like it just literally changes the flavor of what you're eating. Um, we, because we were so excited about this, like three or four years ago, we actually created a product. You know, full disclosure here, we created a product. Um, that is basically a combination of amla berries plus green tea together. And the combination of the two of those, for some reason, the green tea neutralizes the flavor of the amla berries, and it makes it real smooth. Really? And so the name of this product is uh, it's called amla green. And like, just to let everybody here know, I receive no compensation for amla green, and this is not something that like I'm promoting. I'm just saying that that's an option for those of you who are interested in taking it. And if you want to do something else, you can go to your local Indian store. You can pick up amla berries from there. You can try that out as well because, again, it's very pervasive in the Indian culture, and it's very easy to get your hands on. Well, you know, I consider myself somewhat of a tea connoisseur, my friend. You know, oftentimes I will have two dueling tea mugs here while I'm doing these interviews. So uh, I want to get my hands on some of that amla green. I want to taste yeah. that smooth tea that you're talking about. Oh, there you go. There you go. I like it. <laughs> All right, my friend. So uh, you are just doing fantastic things. I hope that you continue to stay safe. Um, try not to go stir crazy while you're in social isolation there in lockdown mode. Um, and just take care of yourself. The cool thing about this is that we get the opportunity still to go out and reach a vast audience and give them as much information as possible during this time. And so we can still change lives and make people healthier. And I love that about doing this show. And it's the same thing that you have with the Mastering Diabetes program. That's exactly right. You know, 
in, in today's world, you know, people are already connected. People are online. We're using Instagram, social media platforms, you name it, right? But even more so, when you're going through a global pandemic and you are literally sentenced to or, or ordered to stay at home, as a result of that, you know, more people are on the computer. Everybody's, you know, online doing checking email, working, and then also able to consume more information. So my hat goes off to you, Marion. You, your, your podcast is one of my absolute favorite podcasts. It's, you told me what, it's ranked number two of nutrition podcasts in the United States right now. Like, I don't even know how you would do that. So like, big round of applause to you, my man. You're reaching thousands, hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And, um, you know, I really admire all the time and time and dedication you put into uh, creating very high quality content. So thank you. It's all about paying it forward. You know, this this thing began as a weight loss journey for me. And now it's just an all out mission to make people as healthy as possible. And I I absolutely love this. 100%. Yeah, it's the greatest job on the planet, isn't it? No doubt. No doubt. And I know that you feel the same way. So, uh, Dr. Cyrus Kambada, thank you so very much. We will link off to your New York Times bestselling book, which is, hey, man, again, congratulations to you. That is that is an ultimate feather in the cap right there. Yeah, thank you, my man. I really appreciate that. You played a role in that, so I, I appreciate it very much. All right, my friend. Stay safe. Dr. Cyrus Kambada, thanks for your time. You too. Remember, even if you're not diabetic yourself, there are millions of others who are. We're talking about our friends and our family and our loved ones. And the truth is, a lot of them don't even realize that they're diabetic, maybe pre-diabetic. They don't even realize it. So please share this episode with them so that they can benefit from this potentially life-saving information during one heck of a chaotic time. Because being healthy is what it's all about. There's also a wealth of resources available at your fingertips at PCRM.org regarding diabetes. What other foods can be helpful and what other ways are there to boost the immune system? And how can a plant-based diet reverse type 2 diabetes? There are answers to all of those questions on PCRM.org, and never has there been a better time to get those answers. And we've put a link to that right now in the show notes for this episode. And coming up shortly, there will be another question and answer session about the coronavirus. We just had one with Dr. Neil Barnard. Now we're going to do it all again. So we're going to be setting aside a lot of time to address your concerns. So if you have a question that you would like for the doctor to answer, now is the time to send it in. And the easiest way to do that is just to find us on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC, or you can go to my page on Facebook, hit the like button and send your question there. Alternatively, the Physicians Committee is at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. And please also head over to Apple Podcast or Spotify, really wherever shows are available, and hit the subscribe button there. And when you do, please also leave a five-star review. And not only will you begin to receive each new episode automatically, but you'll also be helping to get this information into the hands of someone 
who might need it the most. Because the more subscriptions and the more good reviews that we receive, the higher we climb in podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it is for people to find us. And the easier it is for people to find us, the easier it is then for them to learn this potentially life-saving information. So thank you in advance for helping out. And just a quick heads up about a couple of shows that are in the works. We will be welcoming Dr. Joel Kahn to the show in the not-too-distant future. He's going to be here to talk about the only disease believed to pose even a greater threat than diabetes in terms of the coronavirus. Dr. Kahn will be here to discuss heart disease and how that impacts COVID-19 mortality. Plus, he and I, were going to go in depth about lipoprotein A. Mark that one down, lipoprotein A. That is the subject of his new book that he calls The Heart's Quiet Killer. Also coming up will be a discussion with Dr. John Pippen about efforts to fast-track a vaccine for COVID-19 and how some of those efforts have skipped right over the traditional animal testing phase. What could that mean for the future of drug and vaccine development? We're going to find out together. But right now, that's going to wrap things up for this episode. My many, many thanks again to Dr. Jia Zhu and Cyrus Kambata for joining us. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for joining us. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based. <laughs>